Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. I mentioned that we're wrapping up our series this morning, and this morning we are talking about praying for revival. And that is actually going to be a segue into the next four weeks, because the next four weeks we will be starting a sermon series on revival. We'll be looking at what is revival, what is revival not, and I'm going to touch on a little bit of that this morning. The power of the Holy Spirit, things you should look out for in revival, some, some imbalances you need to avoid, but also some things that we can expect whenever true revival comes. So I hope you'll be uh, putting that on your calendar to join us next Sunday for that. Also, please be in prayer over these next sermons for revival. Well, speaking of revival, uh, I grew up in a small country church on the other side of the state, right down there where uh, the, the last few remaining foothills of the Appalachians sort of kind of level out into flatland. And I grew up there, this little country church nestled over in those hills. And if you had that same background, I know many of you did not have that background, uh, but, but if you had that background, you probably remember something that went like this. Every summer and every winter or every spring and every fall, you would host a revival. And that revival, when I grew up and when I was a certain age, that revival started on Sunday morning and then it went to Sunday night. And then we had it Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night. And if things were going really well, they would have it again on Saturday night. And some of you have this experience in your past. And so we had this week-long revival. They would invite a pastor from some other church, and he would come, and he would preach a revival. And, And growing up, that was my understanding of what a revival was. Because every now and then we would have people who would come and sometimes it would be two or three churches would join together and you would have a revival and and sometimes you saw people get saved, gloriously saved. And sometimes there wasn't that type of movement of God. You didn't see a lot of people saved. And I remember hearing people say, well, it's a shame because that's what revival is about. Revival is about people getting saved and this pastor must not be much of a pastor if he had only been louder, if he had only been more passionate, if he had only told more jokes, I actually heard that one time, if he actually told more jokes, then more people might have come to Christ if he had just done all these things. So you had this, uh, I had this understanding growing up, okay, revival is specifically for people who don't know Jesus. That's what I thought. And then as time went on, I found that there was this other group that was saying what revival was in the church where I grew up. And they were saying revival is for encouraging. They would say, I need this revival because it's like a pit stop where I stop and I get refueled for the next six months. And so I got to have my revival because that's what just keeps me going from this six months to that six months. And some of them only showed up there at the revival and at Christmas and Easter. We call them CEOs, Christmas, Easter only. And so they would show up only at these particular times And when they showed up, they were like, I just need this in order to get on to the next thing. And so in my young mind, I'm thinking, okay, so revival is for lost people to get saved and it's for saved people to be encouraged. Then as time went on, I remember the first time it happened, 
they said, we're going to reduce the revival time from a week to just half a week. So the revival would end on Tuesday or Wednesday. And immediately there was this outcry. Oh my goodness, they said, we're not serious about spirituality because we have reduced the amount of revival time. And this was the number one argument. How will the young people learn discipline? Wait, what? How will the young people learn discipline? Because sitting there for, you know, twice a year, sitting there every night in church was a way to learn discipline. And that was their mindset. So I'm sitting here thinking as a kid, okay, here's what revival is. Revival is an opportunity for lost people to get saved. It is for saved people to be encouraged. And it is for young people to learn discipline. And that's what I thought. That if you'd asked me my definition of revival, I may not have used those exact words, but I would have summed it up like that. And I think that that's the way probably a lot of people think about revival. Now, understand what I'm saying. Am I saying that a church should not have a time of revival? No, quote unquote revival. That's not what, no. Whenever you bring in somebody, that's not what I'm saying. I preached a revival last week. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a time where we come together and we have this, you know, someone comes and preaches, and that's a great thing. I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about that. But I am saying this. Whenever you get the mindset of this is what revival is, it's easy just to live in that little definition. That's what I did for years. And do you know what changed that? I read the Bible for myself. And I realized that what the Bible talks about when it talks about revival and what we normally think of when we think of revival are two different things. Now, does it encourage people? Absolutely. Does it lead to spiritual disciplines? Sure. Do lost people get saved? Yes. But we find that the way we understand it is different than what the Bible says. And I want to take us this morning to two verses that started changing my view of it when I started reading the Bible and reading about revival years and years ago. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We come before your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would move. We ask that by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, you would speak to each of our hearts and you would speak to us in a way that we clearly understand that it is you. And then we will be obedient to follow whatever you command, whatever you desire, whatever your will might be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah writes, and when he writes, he has this phrase. He writes, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. And we find that this idea is repeated later on in Isaiah, or earlier actually in Isaiah. We find that this idea is reiterated when we find John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for Jesus. What you find is that this phraseology, if you will, 
it's the phraseology and the terminology that is used to prepare the way for a king to make a royal progress through his kingdom. So you would remove anything that would hinder people from coming to the king, and you would remember remove anything that would hinder the king from making as smooth as possible a progress through his kingdom to survey his kingdom. So valleys would be filled in. They would be heaped up. Mountains would be brought low. Hills would be leveled out. Causeways and bridges would be built in order to give the king the smoothest possible transit through his kingdom to observe the area that he reigns over. That's the idea that Isaiah is saying. Anything that is keeping us from our king and anything that is keeping our king from the smoothest possible progress through our lives, we should heap it up, remove it, smooth it out, straighten it out. He's talking about repentance here. Notice he says in verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God is a holy God. When we talk about God being holy, we are saying that God is separated from sin. Anything that is sinful, God is separated from sin. That's the idea of holiness. And if we want to look at the idea of revival, we need to understand that from this passage, there are some requirements for revival. Now, we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but let me clarify. You don't provoke God to revival. We don't say, here's a list of requirements. If I meet those, then God is obligated to come in and operate a large-scale revival. It's not the way it works. We find that revival throughout the Bible, it's a sovereign work of God. God chooses when, God chooses where. But we do understand that we need to prepare our hearts for revival. Now, here's a question that sometimes people ask. Well, if we can't guarantee revival is going to come, then why bother to do all of this? Because these are things that God requires regardless whether there's widespread revival or not god calls us to obedience in these areas so we have to understand that if we are going to see revival there are some requirements it's kind of like this if you were on a sailboat and you were going to set sail you would you would adjust your sail you would adjust the tack of your sail you would make sure that you were lined up in the right way. You would make sure that you had everything that you needed. But then you know one thing you can't provide? The wind. You don't provide the wind. You don't get it all set and say, and now I'm going to bring the wind. No, God's the one who brings the wind. All you can do is set your sails and be prepared. And it's the same with revival. We can't force God's hand into revival. I've heard people say that. If you just do this and this and this, then revival will come. It's not what it says. That's not guaranteed. It's a sovereign work of God, but there are some requirements. So the first one is this. God's holiness requires our repentance. His holiness requires our repentance. So therefore, we pray that we will be broken over self-righteousness. God is holy. And if God is holy we will understand that we are not holy. Now, I understand we have the righteousness of Christ. Absolutely. 
God has given us Christ's perfect, righteous standard, and, and we can stand before him. Yes. But there are areas of our lives that are less than entirely sanctified. And so we must live with an attitude of repentance because God is a holy God. God takes sin very, very seriously. Listen to Revelation chapter 4. Let's start with verse 8. This is a scene that takes place around the throne of God. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within all day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That is what is going on in heaven. We find that there's this continual praise, holy, 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 before the Lord God of the universe. And if we are praying, Father, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we need to understand what we're praying for is, God, I want your holiness to be revealed here. Now, I understand around this time people say, that's right. That's exactly what we need. That's what our community needs. That's what our state needs. That's what our nation needs. They need to understand the holiness of God. Biblically, do you, un, do you see who has to understand the holiness of God first? God's people. His people. That's who needs to be understand, reach an understanding of the holiness of God. And so we have to understand just how seriously God takes sin and specifically to the element of revival, how specifically he takes sin in the lives of his children. That's an important issue because so often we'll say, oh, you know, it's Hollywood. Oh, it's Washington. Remember that old song? It's me standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's me. We are the ones standing in need of prayer. Do, do we need to see God in Hollywood? Yes. Do we need to see God in Washington? Yes. Why does that, how does that happen? When God's people repent. So often we, we go back and we, we pull that, that famous idea that we find in the Old Testament, that well-known idea, when, when my people who are called by, na- by name humble themselves. Do you understand what it says? When my people who are called by my name It's my people called by my name. They're the ones repenting. They're the ones humbling themselves. That's it. So we have to humble ourselves. We have to repent. We have to be broken of self-righteousness. If you look in Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, Paul lists out his credentials. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about how in verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was a Pharisee. He, he had so much zeal, he was persecuting the church. He had righteousness under the law. He was following all the rules and regulations. He was blameless. But you find in verse 7 of Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He goes on and he says in verse 8 that he counts all of those things as rubbish, as manure. All of his self-righteousness, he says, all I could muster up, it was nothing more than just a bunch of manure before the holiness of God. 
And that's true for us. We have to repent of self-righteousness. So many times, uh, I'll, uh, over the years, I've talked to people and they'll say something like this. Well, you know who's holding up revival? This person or that person? And they have a name. They're the ones holding up revival. And it's always somebody that I've seen who normally is not even in the church. And they're like, well, if they would just get right, things would be better. No, the Bible calls his people to respond to him. He is serious about sin. Serious about sin. It grieves the Holy Spirit. If we could only experience a portion of the grief that the Holy Spirit experiences whenever God's people live with unrepentant sin, we would have a different view of our sin. Because when it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, that's an, that's an actual possibility. It's not some metaphoric thing. Well, you know, he doesn't really grieve. No, he grieves, grieves, groans, grieves over the sin in the lives of God's people. And so we're not supposed to do that. But not only that, can I just tell you, uh, let me give you, maybe this illustration will help. Uh, for, for a number of years, many of you know that for about a decade, I taught uh, school uh, in different settings. And I remember one time they gave me, uh, they said, we need somebody to teach this physical science class. And they said, you've had enough science background, would you do that? Sure. So they gave me a key to the lab and also to the chemical closet. Some of you know, I like making stuff, right? Uh, so I would, like, I would do all these experiments for the kids, and we would drag something into class, and, and I'm, I'm handing out safety goggles, and they're all saying, Mr. George, why do we have to wear these? And I was like, eh, just precaution. You know? So it was that, those sorts of things. It wasn't like baking soda and vinegar. I mean, we would do some, you know, like real, real chemistry, as, it, as we referred to it. Um, but one of the things I found out very early was this. Some of those chemicals, and some of you know this, some of those chemicals, you find that the more potent they are, the more violently reactive they are to impurities into any sort of container that you might place them. So the, the stronger the chemical agent was, the stronger that, that reagent was, you had to be very, very careful to make sure that that test tube or that beaker, that flask was completely and totally clean because if it had the, tr- the slightest trace of impurity in it, when you put that superpower chemical in there, it would have an incredibly violent reaction. I know this, right? So you needed it to be completely clean. In the same way, let's just imagine the incredible power of God. God requires clean vessels. Not only, not only is there an there adverse reaction that goes on, they can be harmful to us whenever we're asking God, show me your power. God, show up. And God's like, I don't think you know what you're asking. You got to get clean before this happens because this could be bad for you if I start pouring out my power with what you have going on 
or not going on, as the case may be. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God's holiness requires repentance. We have to divest ourselves of all self-righteousness, anything that we're depending upon other than God himself. And then we can, we can hope for what we find in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what we have to be seeking. We have to pray that God will will do away with the self-righteousness and will convict us of our sin. And then we need to turn away from that sin and turn toward God because God is a holy God. If you look throughout history, you look throughout the the great revivals that have taken place around the world since Pentecost, you you find one thing, you find multiple things, we'll talk about those, but you find one thing that stands out, God's holiness. It's a sovereign work of God by which people recognize the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the wrath of God. And because of that, they have a fresh understanding of who God is by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. And then they understand, I cannot continue to go in the direction that I'm going in the way that I've been going. The interesting thing I talked about growing up, the interesting thing is, Some of the very people that I heard complaining when revival got shortened down to three nights or four nights, some of those people who were complaining about it saying, well, it's just not going to be the same. I just, I just, I just don't know what I'm going to do. They were the people that year after year after year, revival after revival after revival, they were still just as mean. They complained just as much. They were just as bitter. They were just as angry. They were just as everything as they were before. And there was a part of me that kept wondering, if you're all fired up about revival, it sure hasn't done anything for you. When you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, you will have to make a choice. Either you're going to say, I'm going to ignore it and keep going in the direction that I'm going, which is a downward course, or I'm going to repent and I'm going to get right with God, which is an upward course. But nobody remains static when they encounter the holiness of God. You will either reject him or you will embrace him. One way or the other. There is no middle ground. There's no, I'm just going to keep going like I'm going. No, no, no. There is no level ground in the meantime. You will either grow farther away from him or you will grow closer to him in his likeness. So God's holiness requires our repentance. Secondly, God's sovereignty requires our surrender. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. This is a position of honor. God is on his throne. God is ruling over all things sovereignly. And that requires our surrender. So therefore we pray that we would step down from self-rule. You know what self-rule is? I'm the, I'm the captain I'm the master. I'm in control of all things. I rule over all things. Sometimes we say, we have, we, we say stuff like this. We have the bumper sticker, right? It says, God is my co-pilot. Well, you better scoot over. Because if God is your, just your co-pilot, wait a minute. Because you ain't piloting the thing anyway. God is sovereign. 
He's on his throne. He rules over everything. And so we surrender to him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. We talked about this earlier. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we're praying the Lord's prayer, we're praying, God, I want your rule that you have in heaven to be manifest here on earth, ruling over all things and everything lined up under your will and your sovereign rule. That's what we're saying. Now, sometimes we have a problem with that, especially as Americans, because we had a revolution to throw off a monarchy. But whenever you come to God, you realize you are a part of a kingdom and we have a monarch. We have a king who is over all things and he is the sovereign king and his way is the way, the only way. That's it. He says so and it's done. We don't get an opportunity. Well, okay, God, we'll get back to you. We got to have a meeting and vote on whether or not we're going to do this, God, for you. No, God's the king. Imagine, go, let's go back to medieval Europe and, and some of these kings, whether they're good kings or evil kings. And, so, and the king says, here's my command. And somebody's like, no, nah, I don't know about that. How about we get a bunch of people together and we have a discussion about this king. We'll get back to you and decide whether or not we want to. You wouldn't do that with a king. But that's what we do with our king. Oh, God, I'll consider that. He's a king. God, I don't know if I like that command. He's a king. God, I don't know that I want to surrender everything to you. He's our king. And as a king... And as one who owns us because he bought us by the blood of Christ, then that means he has access to every single part of our lives. Listen, we won't see revival until you're able to say to God, God, you can flip over every rock. You can go into every dark corner. You can go into every locked closet. It's all yours. I am yours. I surrender fully and completely to you, to your rule, to your way. You're the king and I'm not. And we won't see personal revival until we are willing to surrender to God. We won't. When we, we sing, uh, you know, I surrender all. Do we? Sometimes I sing it and I'm thinking, oh God, I'd love to just sing. I surrender most of the stuff, right? I surrender some. No, I surrender all because God's sovereign. Proverbs 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Also, Proverbs 21, 31, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. God has his way of of doing things. Paul, in in Romans chapter 8, we don't have time to read this passage, it's on your outline. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9, Paul contrasts those who live according to the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. And if we live according to the Spirit, what we're saying is, God, I'm going to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. I'm going to set my mind on what you want, what you desire. I'm going to surrender my will to your will, God. And that's what God calls us to do. And and so if we we look at this God's sovereignty requiring our surrender, our utter and complete surrender to him. We watch horror movies. We watch sci-fi movies. And there's always that, you know, there's a guy who or person who creates uh, a robot or creates an invention or creature or something. And then it goes on a rampage and they're like, oh, no, we can't control it. And then it turns against its creator. And we watch it in horror. And we say, oh, my goodness, this is awful. This is terrible. This is a complete and total disaster. 
yet we ourselves turn against our creator and we act like that's the norm oh we're turning it we're, we're not doing what god wills and then somebody will say well you know that's just how we are everybody has room for improvement that's not what god says god doesn't say well everybody has room for improvement Meh. no he says i'm the king surrender to me step down from your self-rule because pride is a huge danger pride is one of those things that will kill revival before it even gets started pride will stunt your spiritual growth before you even get started and we we act like we you know we we act like we're beyond humility you read you read about paul and paul talking about he said all these visions and then god in order to keep him humble allows a messenger from satan to to come against him we don't know exactly what that messenger of satan was but that messenger of satan comes against him to keep paul humble and then paul says it's a thorn in his flesh and he he prays god remove it god remove it god remove it and god says no my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness And the problem is that so many people within the church today think we're already too humble to require a thorn. We're not. God wants to humble us. God wants us to understand that we are to surrender to him and step down from any sort of self-rule that we have. Listen, we are not fit. We are not fit and equipped and able to rule the universe from thrones of our own making. We're not only god has that rightful place so we surrender to him what area of your life are you trying to rule it over yourself i'm just going to control it myself i'm going to be in control of this no one's going to control it but me and i'm just going to and god i got this thank you very much can i just tell you that's probably an area that god's pressing on letting you know you need to surrender that to him finally god's power requires our dependence pray that we would reject self-reliance Notice how much in Isaiah 57, God is the one who does the work. He's the one who revives the spirit of the lowly. He's the one who revives the heart of the contrite one. God's the one who does the work by his spirit. So we are dependent upon his power. So we are to pray that we would reject self-reliance. That we rely on our own power. God says, no, you rely upon me. John 15, 5. Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. You can't live for him. You can't can't seek out the things of God. You can't make him known. You can't do any of the things without the power of the Holy Spirit. Depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And so many times people say, well, I think it's a cooperation it's like half me half the holy spirit no 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 it's the power of the holy spirit the very fact the very the very fact that you even want to serve god is an act of the holy spirit you you find in philippians chapter 2 verse 12 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling all right time out he's not talking about working to maintain your salvation that's not what he's talking about he's talking about bringing it to fulfillment and he's talking about work out your salvation and so many people take this verse and they go aha see Paul is saying, it's on you, church of Philippi. It's on you, Philippians. You got to work it out. You got to step up. You got to do it by your own power. But look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in us, both to will and to work. 
If you have a want to, it's because the Holy Spirit is prompting you, giving you the want to. And then he equips you in order to do that. He's the one who does the work. And so we follow the Holy Spirit and we depend upon his power. Think about, think about creation. God woke me up at 3 a.m. this morning and with this as a thought. Imagine this at 3 a.m. I was half confused. I was like, Lord, where did that come from? 3 a.m., wide awake. And, and, and God just kind of brought my mind back to creation. Back to creation, back to Adam and Eve, back to God breathing life, his spirit into dirt and bringing that dirt to life, animating it. And then you go over to the New Testament where God gives life in Christ. We can no more breathe life into dirt and give dirt life and create a human life any more than we can we can just say the word or say it in the right way and then boom somebody's going to get saved i've had people tell me before all right if you just said it this way and this way and this way i think more people would respond oh here's an idea why don't we just rely upon god's word and his holy spirit to do the work because there, hey y'all listen there are people that you can talk to about the gospel and you can share it very very clearly and you can share it and lay it all out and the holy spirit in working in them so then what do we do we start trying to change the message and call out to them using other methodology trying to get a response so we'll feel good about ourselves listen y'all there are some people that are going to reject it we're just responsible for making it known we are to make it known and we are depend upon his power in order to do so i actually had one one person at one point in time say you use an awful lot of scripture Yeah, because God's power is in God's word and God's word can accomplish everything that God can accomplish because it's God's word. And so we depend upon God's word. Many years ago, God just lit me up over Jeremiah 23, 29. One phrase in there, is not my word like fire? Is not my word like fire? And God just made it very clear to me through a series of events listen you just let my word you just you just put my word out there and you just you let me light it up you let me fan the flames you just put it out there you put it out there and my word will do the work and if somebody's like well it's not working in my life you know what then maybe they've got some issues where they've got a hearing issue going on it maybe is a hearing problem it's not a word problem it's a hearing problem remember we talked about this it's not a seed problem it's a soil problem and it's always a soil problem. It's never a problem with a seed. It's always a soil. So we can't create physical life. We can't create spiritual life. We depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we, God's power requires our dependence upon him. And so we go before him and we reject all self-reliance. Anything that we're depending upon. Anything. Sometimes I'll talk about Jesus, etc. We want to take Jesus and then we add all these other things on. Oh, if you just have Jesus, but you also need this, 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 and this. There is no Jesus, etc. It's Jesus alone. He is the one we are depending upon. Does he equip us? Absolutely. Does he lead us through his word? Absolutely. Do we depend upon him though fully and completely? Yes. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed. Wait a minute now. 
Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. If you're depending on your own self, if you're self-reliant, God is like, you are cursed. You're you're cursed. You're not going to have it. In the time of trouble, you're going to wilt. You're not, you're not rooted in the streams of living water. You're not rooted in my power. You're relying upon yourself. And then whenever those difficulties come, guess what? You're going to fold up because you can't bear up under it. If we're going to see revival, we have to understand that God's power requires our dependence upon him. And we have to reject self-reliance, self-righteousness, self-rule, self-reliance. They're all enemies. They're all enemies of revival. I don't mean corporate revival only. I'm talking about personal revival. Because you know what revival is? Revival is that sovereign work of God where he does make his holiness known to a people, yes. But what we find is that God starts dealing with individuals. And as God deals with those individuals, one after another, after another, after another, And when those individuals come to an understanding of who God is and his holiness and his will and his desires, one of the first things that you see is there's this unity that takes place within the people of God. As one old pastor said, when true revival comes, there are more people crossing aisles than going down them. People get right with each other. People get right with God. People get right with each other in the body of Christ. And then they go out and make him known. And then that's when people get saved. It's when the people of God get right. With God and with each other and in that unity, then they go out and make Christ known. That's the idea. It's not just where we get, need, to get a, we need to get a busload of people who don't know Jesus and get them in here to church and then they get saved and we're going to call that a revival. Well, that's good, but that ain't revival. Revival is just that, reviving, to live again, revive. People who don't know Christ need to be vived. <laughs> People who know him are revived. My prayer is that God will send revival. Best I can tell, I was telling Rebecca and she's out of town this weekend. I, I was telling Rebecca the other day, I said, do you know how long I've been working on this sermon for Sunday? She said, oh, three, four weeks, maybe longer. I said, 15 years. It's been 15 years. Best I can tell, that's conservative. I look back over some notes, 15 years. 15 years is when I can look back and I can say 15 years ago, that I truly began to pray, God, will you, will you please, will you please revive your people? And Lord God, would I, Lord, I'm praying that I would get to see it before I die. One time, true revival. Not, oh, we have a moment, not, oh, it was a great, it was a great, no, 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 no. I mean like true revival that, that lasts, because that's what true revival does, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. True revival has reverberations that keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. Maybe not in the intensity as it was initially, but it keeps going. I I can honestly say I've never seen that true revival. 
that kept going and 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 kept reverberating and echoing out through a people, through a culture, through a society. And we find in many cases, and when true revivals came, they hopped oceans, spread to other countries. Now, I know that our initial thought is probably, uh, but we're too far gone. Oh, the world's too far gone. That was a different time, different time. Listen, you've heard me say it before. Whether a nation, whether a people are ripe for revival or judgment depends upon repentance. That's it. Because that ripeness comes. And, and you either go one of two ways. Either you continue in the way that you're going and there's judgment that comes or you continue in a different way and allow God, follow God's way and there's repentance that takes place. That's what, it's, that's what it depends upon. Is there revival or, there is, or is there judgment? It's all based on repentance. It's all based on a return to him. Return to me, says God in Malachi, and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. Now, around this time some people were like mm, because here's what's happening i know i'm out of time hang on here's what's happening there's some of you right now that during this time god has laid his finger on something how do i know this because god laid his finger on lots of things whenever i was preparing this over the last few weeks okay so i know that if god's working in your heart that god didn't god didn't look at anybody here and say you're good. You're fine. It's all the rest of them. Now, if you heard that, can I just tell you, that was not God. Okay. Might have been your spouse, but it wasn't, it wasn't God who whispered that in your ear. Listen, every one of us in this room has something that falls under one of these categories, if not multiple categories. Every single one of us in this room, because none of us have arrived, all right? None of us. My prayer is that whatever God has laid on your heart, and you may say, oh, but you don't understand. God put a list on my heart during the sermon. Okay, start with one. Start with it. Lay it before him. And then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And keep doing that. Don't walk out of here today and say, Ooh, I'm glad to get out of here. I'm glad I'm in Cracker Barrel. Don't have to think about my sin anymore. Can I tell you what my prayer is and what I've been praying this week? I've been praying, God, you do whatever it takes among your people to bring us back to you. Whatever it takes to break us of our self-will and our, our, our self-rule and all the self-righteousness and everything, all the things, whatever it takes to break us of that, Lord, please do that. But Lord God, may we be people who recognize it and come before you and just lay it before you so that you don't have to go to that place with us. What grieves your heart the most? You say, if I said, what's going on with some Hollywood celebrity? You go, oh yeah, that grieves my heart. Okay, what's going on with some politician and some human-built ivory tower? Oh, yeah, that grieves my heart. But if, if there was something going on in the life of your child, can I just tell you, that would grieve your heart 
more than all those other things combined. God's heart is grieved when his children are out of fellowship with him. I don't mean that in a mean-spirited, judgmental way. Because God's laid some things on me and said, you're out of fellowship with me in this area. You need to come back to me. Return to me and I'll return to you. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the sage on the sage speaking down. I'm the one who's like, I'm in here with you. I'm with you in this walk. I'm with you in this walk of repentance. Right? Every Sunday before I get up here, I spend a lot of time, Lord God, if there is anything in me that would hinder your word from being preached in the way that you would have it to be preached, God, bring it to mind. And sometimes he brings things to mind and I'm thinking, what? That was, I haven't even thought, I thought about that in like a year. And God will bring something up and I repent and leave it before God. God, I didn't even know that was an issue, but Lord, I'm leaving it. Okay, 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 Lord, I'm leaving it. I repent. Whatever it is, it's not too small a thing. It's not too small a thing. No matter how minuscule you think it is, if God points it out, it's a big deal to a holy God who grieves over sin in the lives of his children, who wants to revive the heart, the spirit of the humble and contrite ones. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, we come before you recognizing you, you are a holy God. And in and of ourselves, we can't do anything to reach you. That was a work of grace and mercy in that you sent your son in our place, to die in our place on a cross so that we could know you, so that we could enter into your presence. And Father, we all have something. Every one of us has something that if, this, if at this moment your sovereign desire was to send revival among us as your people, there would be things that every single one of us would need to get right with you about. And so, Father, I pray that we would do just that. Father, I pray in this time, if anybody needs to come to the altar and just leave something before you, that they would have the freedom and boldness to do so. Oh, but I, I keep having to lay it down and lay it down again. Father, that's what, that's what you'd tell them. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here or anybody among us, that anybody among our family and friends, that they don't, they don't know you. Father, I pray that you would, you would write our hearts and empower us by your spirit to boldly share the gospel, the hope that is found in Christ with them. And Father, we're not ashamed to ask for revival. But we're also understanding that when we ask for revival, we're asking that you would change us. Your work is not going to leave us unchanged. You have a desire to make us like your son. And you are faithful to complete that work that you started in your children. So, Father, we pray that you would. That you would complete that work. Father, there are people here that they're out of fellowship not only with you, they're out of fellowship with each other. Maybe there's an apology that needs to be issued. Maybe there's forgiveness that needs to be asked. Maybe there's forgiveness that needs to be extended even though 
that forgiveness has not been asked. Father, I pray you would do a work. Father, I pray if there's any sin that we might have under any rock, in any corner, in any closet, anything that we have that we just have kind of walled off and tried to hide from others and hide from you, even hide from ourselves maybe. Father, I pray that you would bring it to light and you would help us to see that it's standing in the way of our fellowship with you. May we desire that fellowship with you, that presence with you so deeply, so passionately that the loss of anything else would not matter at all to us in exchange for knowing you. Do a work now in your people. And as we go into the next few weeks, as we look at revival, we look at the power of the Holy Spirit, we look at the way that you operate, the way that you work, and what you want to do among your people. Father, may you be glorified above all. May you be seen, may you be known, and may your righteousness and holiness and justice and goodness and grace and love be clearly revealed from your word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.